Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Podcast. To find out more about the Worklife Hub and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Hub Podcast. I am your host, Agnes Uheretsky. If this is the first time that you are tuning in, let me just say a few words about this podcast. We speak to authors, researchers, business thought leaders, for them to share their knowledge and insight on work-life balance, leadership, culture change and organizational development. In our work at the Worklife Hub, we help companies reform their workplace to create a culture that embraces diversity and work-life balance. We are passionate about building vibrant and engaging workplaces that are great for employees and customers. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do this via Twitter at WorkLifeHub, on our LinkedIn page or on our website. We're always happy to hear how you like the podcast or any other ideas that you would like to share with us. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the listeners of the Work Life Podcast. This is your host, Agnes, and it is for me such a huge pleasure and a great honor to be joined by Sir Carolyn Cooper today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much indeed. So, Professor Sir Kerry Cooper is one of the most distinguished voices on people management. He is a psychologist and the 50th anniversary professor of organizational psychology and health at Manchester Business School, Manchester University. He has been awarded a CBE in 2001 and knighted, knighted in 2014 for services to social uh, science. He's a regular columnist and commentator for The Guardian, The Sunday Times, the BBC on work, workplace issues. He also wrote over 300 scholarly articles and over 120 books on managerial and organizational behavior. And last year he was also elected as the president of the CIPD and as well as president of the British Academy of Management. And I could just go on and on and fill basically the whole podcast with your amazing uh, career. But may I just ask you a little bit about your journey? How did you get into this particular field? Well, I think the way I got into the field was there was a, a large company that asked me to do some work on why senior executives were not moving, uh, you know, when they'd offer them promotion to another part of the world. This is for kind of global. This was a global company. And, um, you know, I had a Ph.D. student and she and I worked on this project. And as we were interviewing people to under try to understand why they kept refusing promotional moves uh, to different parts of the world, we kept hearing the word stress. Mm -hmm. We kept hearing the word, you know, I don't want to be away from my family, the stress, I don't need the stress of the, of the higher uh, level job. Uh, I don't need this really in my life now. I just want to, you know, have a nice, a good career, but I want to get some kind of balance. So then we started to do work in the field of stress to look at workplace stress. And this was a long time ago. This was in the late 70s. And we were looking at, um, you know, what nobody had really done systematic research on workplace stress, occupational stress. So we started to do it in companies and then um, all sorts of other bodies got in touch with us, teaching unions, healthcare workers. Uh, so it was public sector, private sector. And then all of a sudden we kept seeing that the in, an increase in 
stress-related illnesses in industry and in the public sector, uh, that they were starting to pass muscular skeletal diseases, i.e. backache and everything else, which used to be the leading causes of sickness absence in Europe. Now they are no longer the leading cause of sickness absence, what we call the common mental disorders of stress, anxiety, and depression. They are, co- they are big buck costs to companies, to countries. It's a big, big issue. And I think it's basically because if you look at Western Europe, for example, a lot of the manufacturing has moved to the east. So the Western Europe is no longer, it's basically a service knowledge-based economy with some manufacturing like in Germany and a few countries. But basically, our, our problems in, 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 Western, in Western Europe, North America, and so on, are really people problems. Yes, absolutely. And where do you see this perhaps now linked to what is the new world of work, the, the digitalization, and also just Europe coming out of, you know, very gradually from a crisis where people have suffered um, anxiety also towards job insecurities. So even though we know more and there's more wealth of knowledge on these issues, uh, would you concur that this is still an increasing issue and less is done about it on a practical level? Yeah, it, this is even more significant now than it was pre-2008. With the massive, severe recession that we've all been through, globally, it's not just yeah. Europe. By this, this is a global phenomenon. But let's take a look at, at what the impact of that me- has been. First of all, almost all private and public sector bodies have downsized very dramatically during, that, during the recessionary period. Um, in the UK, most, pri- uh, most private sector companies have reduced by 20 to 25 percent, most public sector by 35 to 40 percent. Um, and so there are fewer people. Those fewer people are doing more work. They're working longer hours. They're feeling more job insecure because the consequence of the recession is jobs are no longer for life. We now have more zero hours contracts. We have more short short term contracts. We have what I call the contingent workforce in most European countries, not just European, but uh, North American countries, uh, North America as well. And that means that people, the job are no longer guaranteed for life. And the recession is really dramatically changed the nature of work to that extent. And as a consequence of that, um, the insecurity leads to people working longer hours. It leads to presenteeism, which is a construct I developed many, many years ago, which means people are turning up to work sick because they're frightened of not turning up to work, that they feel they have to show FaceTime to kind of guarantee the security of their job, even if they're not delivering any added value which in presenteeism terms, they don't. So people who turn up to work ill or job dissatisfied or, uh, or whatever are people who tend not to deliver any added value, but they're present. And they think that that might protect them for any uh, next tranche of redundancies that you might see uh, in, in the work environment. So that's the scenario we're in. And it's, it's a lot worse than it has been. And so we now have to adapt. And I think the younger generation, you know, the millennials, uh, the Y generation all understand that work is no longer secure. That's part and parcel of their life. Now they go from one employer to the other 30 years ago, you might've worked for, um, two companies in a lifetime, now you're likely to work for a dozen, if not more, in a lifetime. 
And the young people understand that. The people who are having more difficulty understanding it, I think, are the 40 to 45-year-olds and above. Yes, and, and I think they're also much more at risk of of uh, losing if they lose their job if they drop out maybe because they have elder care responsibilities especially with the baby boomers getting older um, they're just i guess holding on because if they drop off um, then it's incredibly difficult to come back on the labor market and find another uh, related job with with the same absolutely absolutely and i i think um that's why in a way uh what's going on in Europe is, is kind of problematic. We have, Europe hasn't really totally recovered. Country, certain countries in Europe have, in the EU, let's say, like the UK has recovered. Well, it's still, it's recovered. It's not in recession, uh, but it, and, it, and it's doing reasonably well, but it's still bumping below, you know, it's still bumping at the bottom in a sense. It's, mm. it's not really recovering pre-2008. Uh, and most of Europe is like that as well. And then that it gets exacerbated by the immigration crisis and by, you know, the, and all of that, all the kind of political upheaval as well. Uh, but um, nevertheless, you know, the nature of work has changed. It's not just in Europe, by the way. The nature of work, I think, has changed globally now. Uh, you know, I think people are perceived now uh, as um, uh, movable assets and, you know, um, and if you need them, you, you employ them. And if you don't, you get rid of them. And I don't think that was the kind of European mode of thinking prior to the recession. Absolutely. And, and I think that what uh, I observe from comparing the U.S. mainly with Europe is that um, also m more and more employees have to become the navigators to craft their own successful lives and careers. I think in Europe there is, needs to be a mentality shift that is no longer my benevolent employer that is going to um, cushion me and take care of me and, and just guide me along in my 30-year career and then throw a party, but that the employees have to really take um, their careers. Total responsibility. Their own, yes. I totally. They have to take responsibility themselves for their own careers. Uh, organizations, even the global ones, don't micromanage you anymore. No. Uh, you know, and the global companies, by the way, are getting smaller because technology enables them to cut back people. And you can see the downsizing that's occurred in the in uh, the petrol and gas industries massively. Um, you you can see it in a whole range of industries where there are fewer people. Technology has taken over some of their jobs. Um, and, and that's just life now. I think the younger generation, the good news is the 30 and early, the 30 somethings, the late twenties and early thirties understand the, this and understand they're not going to work for an employer, a, a single employer for a long time and that they will be going between employers and they need to develop their own skills and everything else. The difficulty for a lot of employers is how do we retain people? So retention is, is quite a big issue. And in funny enough, I was asking somebody in the finance sector, a senior HR person, very senior. So I said, you know, before 2008, you did nothing to try to retain people or to uh, improve their well-being or reduce the stress levels on them. Why are you doing it now? And he said to me, regrettable turnover. I cannot, I am so, we are so mean and lean. We have so few people that losing key people now is fundamental 
So talent management is one of the motivators for people doing well-being. So create a culture in which people feel valued, trusted, and the like. Give them a certain flexibility. Allow them to um, manage them by praise and reward, not by fault finding. All those kind of characteristics of a well-being culture are now being pursued to retain pe good people, yeah. critical people, and also attract some new critical people. Yes, but uh, what is your take on, because I, I, I come into this uh, conversation and this whole work-life arena with a great sense of social justice. Um, and I just feel that, that um, work-life balance and this retention and attraction um, uh, perks and benefits and, and policies in, in workplaces are just even widening the inequalities because you have the key uh, programmer that's you know hunted by all of the financial institutions who can make you know or break businesses and so there is the the fast growing startups and some of the very specialized companies who offer you know all day food the massage chair the um, the flexibility in terms of space and and places of work and time and but that's still very very few and and i just wonder that there is just so many people stuck in these kind of middle-range uh, companies still in bad quality jobs where they don't have any of this. Yeah, but that's not what a well-being culture should be about. It shouldn't be for the privileged or the people you want to retain or the high flyers. It should be every for everybody. Exactly. And in fact, the UK government did something quite interesting last year. They We used to have a law here that the right to request flexible working the right to request it, not to get it, but to yeah. request it from your employer, uh, was open to only people with children, mm -hmm. right? The law was changed last year because I, I and a number of other people had done research showing that they'll get the cost-benefit analysis will double if they open it up for everybody. Yeah. Why should it only be for people who have kids that are five or six? Why shouldn't it be for every employee? They have the right, right to request it. Yeah. And that, that they don't have the right to get it. But the employer under law now in the UK has to give a reason why they can't have it if you request it. And it's open to everybody because we have elder care. We have a single people or unmarried people who say, hey, I, you know, I don't have kids or I don't have elder care, but I would like to work flexibly. New technology enables me to given the job I do. And it would suit my lifestyle to do that. So the good news there is it's now open to everybody, but a well-being culture in a workplace shouldn't be for the few. For example, another thing I don't really like is I don't like the fact that we give ex large bonuses to very senior people in the banking sector, for yes. example. Yes, I think why, you're not alone there. <laughs> uh, why, why are we doing that? Why aren't we opening, why aren't we doing uh, employee ownership? partly ownership of banks why aren't they being given shares everybody in a bank why are why are we have disproportionate uh, uh bonuses um why aren't all the employees sharing in the benefit of the organization now they say they will that they are they will but their their the proportional share is so much lower and it's really you know, creates difficulty when the top and bottom of organizations have such a major uh, income gap. Absolutely. So, I mean, I don't think we're, we're not, not necessarily, do, and I, I'm all for 
employee ownership of businesses. And I think they should have a share in the business they're in. Number one, that would probably retain people more. They'd feel more motivated because they feel they have some ownership. And uh, we need more of that. One of the most successful businesses we have in the UK is uh, the department store chain called John Lewis's Partnership, right? It's owned by its employees, 100%. Yes. And when you go work for them, you get shares. And everybody shares. And then there's a committee at the top made up of employees, you know, the chair of the uh, board. And that is the way I think companies should go. But they're not moving in that direction, really. No, and also there's a body of research and evidence that shows that monetary rewards only motivate you to perform better up to a certain degree. It's going to be... Uh, a trust in you, an autonomy, you know, not micromanaged to figure out your own solutions and space to do your job well and at the same time be able to have a good quality life that's going to make you want to give your best and not necessarily just money. Yeah, but the money thing is interesting because if you look at the banking sector, who are the people that caused us the problems in the recession? They were the people getting these massive bonuses for developing products nobody understood unsecuritized mortgages. Nobody understood what they were doing. Uh, They got lots and lots of bonus money for developing these products. So it was having a maladaptive effect. When there's a huge gap, when there's a hundred times or 200 times gap between what a CEO makes and what somebody on the, an average earner makes in a business, I think that's, that causes enormous social inequality and not only that it's a it's a big demotivator but we're still there we still have that so what do you think is going to be a tipping point for uh, private and maybe even public sector employers to rethink the way they manage their people and, and perhaps bringing what you just said about employee ownership or more empowerment in the decision making more accountability and also foster well-being. What could happen? Would it be legislation? Would it be the unions? Um, what What do you anticipate as, as something that would bring about this tipping point? Well, funny enough, I don't think it'd be any of that because I don't think we're <laughs> going to get that. I think politically nobody feels robust enough to do that when the economies are fairly weak to really go after business. And I don't really want to go after business. I think what's going to do it is lost competitive advantage. That's what's yeah. going to do it. When I what I hear from chief execs, C, uh, HR directors, senior management generally in in organizations, po- public and private sector. But let's take the private sector for mm-hmm. starters. They say the thing that's driving us now is performance. That we now know there's a link between a well-being culture and performance. The more we are employee friendly. The more we manage people by praise and reward, not by fault finding, the more we allow flexibility, the more we have more socially skilled managers at every level in the organization, so they're more attuned to the needs and the concerns of employees. Um, And the the more we don't create a long hours culture and make sure there's a bit of work-life balance here, uh, the more uh, we get better productivity, higher performance, less sickness absence, Da 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 da, and they they do the costing on this now, and and they're and you know they lose competitive advantage when they don't have cultures like this now, because all work environments throughout the whole of Europe now are pretty mean and lean. They are cut back right to the bone. Their labor costs have had to be reduced 
very dramatically since the beginning of 2008. And so I think that's what's going to kill them off. I don't think it's going to be government saying to them, you have to do this, that, and the other. In any case, I don't think they're going to do that. Well, they haven't so far. Yeah. You know, the government hasn't said, you know, long hours culture is bad. Europe, in a way, has because they have a working time directive. But you know what? There's so many buyouts on that. Employees c- can be forced to sign buyout clauses on the European working time directive. Um, uh, employers still can work people, you know, 60 hour weeks, you know, because I think I can't remember what the period is. It's 16 or 18 weeks where you have to average 48 hours. Right. Well, they could work them 60, 70 hour weeks and then drop it to 40 and average at 48. It, it's not it's not necessarily just about the hours, although there's a lot of evidence. If you work consistently long hours, you will get ill and performance yeah. will be affected. Now, we know that. And the European Working Time Directive is not even as liberal as it could be. And even though we have that in law, people aren't actually employers aren't really listening to it. Not really. Yeah. And they, they can get the sign off for the employees to say, no, I choose not to follow this. Uh, and employers go over it anyway. Because if you're feeling insecure as an employee, are you going to complain about the, you're gonna, you, that your employer is consistently working over 48 hours? There's no way you're going to complain. Jobs are a bit scarce. They're not going to complain. Absolutely. And, and, and especially in some of the sectors where, um, you know, the, the financial services, banking, uh, legal, uh, the whole legal uh, sector, yep. Uh, and and some of the corporates where I I have heard very interesting examples where some some legal firms in the U.S. recognize that, you know, we're just uh, killing off our our best partners. So why don't we ask them to leave one evening per week? And uh, the partners in the law firm didn't take this opportunity to leave at seven, which is already a ridiculously late hour because they thought it's a trap. They yep. thought, you know, they were being observed for, okay, is this person motivated or not? So Yeah, they, I think we have that culture that if yeah. you, you leave early now, you're not as committed. And Absolutely. that's a problem. It's a real problem. That's why people still, when they get home, they send emails, they continue to work. It's almost 724 now. And th- that, that's not healthy for anybody. And also, if you're in the professional services business, accounting, law, the rest of it, what are you doing? You're doing billable hours. They still have a billable hours that they have to reach. And to do those billable hours means usually long hours. And it, they're global, sometimes global, and they feel they have to do it. And we, don't, we don't train clients to understand that people still have to have lives. And you want, yes. you want quality work. You don't want people working till three in the morning on your, you know, merger globally, because they can also make mistakes and it could cost you in the long run. Absolutely. But, uh, but I think we have to change that. And while people are feeling job insecure and they still are, because the recession in a sense isn't over, you know, no. it's not, it's still in many countries still alive or the economies are bumping along the bottom and everybody's kind of frightened people will continue to show facetime they will continue to turn up early stay late do emails at home do it on their smartphones without for dinner with their families that's the quality of life i'm afraid we've created for ourselves but it's not it's not an effective quality of life i think the good news for europe for example and in north america is that they're even worse in the emerging countries like china and india <laughs> they're yes. working even longer than we are yeah 
I, I love the, uh, on The Guardian, you wrote one uh, article, which was called Work Email is Making Us a Generation of Idiots. Time to switch off. And I think w there was no um, user manual on how to use email. No, you're because right. We went from letters to emails. And when at the beginning of emailing, you received two a day, that was great. You could still reply with dear so-and-so, sincerely yours, you know, really almost like writing yeah. a letter. But what do you do when you receive 500 a day? I think this is an epidemic and we just don't know how to deal with it. No, it's an epidemic. I mean, it really is bad. And companies are now, some companies are beginning to shut the uh, their servers down at the weekend. And some companies are giving very, very strong guidance. You are not to access your, we're not shutting the server down, but you are not to access your work email at the weekend unless you're on an international job and it's absolutely vital. And many for example, in the UK, in the US, and some European countries, are even saying you don't send emails to colleagues in the same building. We've had that here for quite a long time. So that if you're in a building, and it's not a 40-story building, let's say, yeah. right, you, you do not, you go see them eyeball to eyeball, because that's the yeah. way you team build. You can send them a file, but you are not to discuss the file. That has to be done face-to-face. We need to do that, and we need to stop people trying to access their emails at night. Now, here's the difficulty. It's called the smartphone. Yes. And the smartphones are dam is damaging us because we, can, we have control over it. We can keep it off, but we don't. And because yes. we keep it on at night, and just go into a restaurant anywhere in Europe. I mean, I was just in Vienna at a conference a few days ago, and uh, – went out for a meal with my wife and we're looking at people and what are they doing? There were families there, right? And you could see the kids looking at their knee as they were texting. Yeah. And the, you could see the parents looking at their emails at yes. seven, eight o'clock at night. Not, yes, not, yes. That's not, it's not, it's not healthy. We have not yeah. controlled it. Now, Atos, the big French company, is trying to make themselves email free by creating platforms so people can talk to each other via Skype-like scenarios. In other words, where you just don't do emails. And yeah. apparently they say they're about 70% email free now. Wow. And I, I think that's going to be hard. It's, it, it's not that emails are bad. It's that we don't use them properly. We CC in everybody to protect our backsides. A lot Especially of, people working from home. Yeah. You know, if there's a presentism culture and then you can still do telework, exactly. then you really send up, uh, you know, inundate your colleagues with work email to show them that, hey, I'm not watching daytime TV, I'm working. Uh, exactly. You do it for that reason. You could send an email to two people you're working with, but you send it to 12. Yeah. Because you want either your boss to see you're doing a, you know, you're on top of your job or. Uh, you just want to protect yourself uh, yes. by making sure that other people know that you you just made this decision. And so the CCing in, and there are companies, I can't remember which company it is, is saying you don't CC more than two people. Yeah, That's their rule. The rule you don't do that. Now, we need more guidance on this. We need to manage technology. It's wonderful. I don't really want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't want to get rid of emails, but I want it managed more and certain guidelines about when we should do what and you know and also make sure that we prioritize our emails to people so that they don't feel they have to respond immediately and we we just need to control this technology because it's controlling us it's a yeah. great invention but it's causing enormous techno stress absolutely
Well, we have uh, unfortunately come to our last question um, uh, with Professor Sir Kerry Cooper. And, and the last question is, is always the same here on the Work Life podcast. If I could ask you to give one advice to a CEO of a company to make uh, an improvement into the well-being of his or her employees, what would be your one advice? My one advice would be the thing that causes people to be more stressed than anything is poor, your poor line manager. Yeah. A line manager who's not socially and interpersonally aware, doesn't recognize the symptoms when somebody's not coping, manages them by fault finding, keep, uh, creates a long working hours, culture, et cetera, et cetera. So my one advice would be train the managers you have to be more socially and interpersonally skilled and only recruit those who have the technical competence but more importantly, have the social interpersonal skills. So in recruiting, recruit managers from shop floor to top floor who are socially and interpersonally sensitive. Have that as a major criteria for selection and train the ones you currently have, train them up more in that arena. And those who don't have it, move them out of management. Absolutely. Wonderful advice. I wholeheartedly agree. And I just wanted to conclude and, and thank you very, very much for taking the time from your very busy schedule to spend this half an hour with us and, and sharing some of your insight and your wisdom with our listeners. Thank you very much, Agnes. I enjoyed it.